Rich, it's good to see you today. It's great to see you, Paul. I'm Paul Ford. Rich Ziotti. We're the co-founders of a company called Postlight. That is a product studio in New York City. And this is our podcast. People are telling me to be more excited. It's track changes. That's not a cynical. Breath. There's it's cynicism a, throughout. Uh, it's all, all for the five-star review. So, Rich, uh, speaking of five-star reviews, <laughs> I just <laughs> jammed that in there. Um, good move. Good we have move. a very special guest today. Tom Vanderbilt. Tom Vanderbilt. Rich, Tom is the author of a book called You May Also Like Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. Yes. And to drive that home, they actually uh, they sent a copy of the book in two colors. It's in two colors. It's in this sort of like... Two copies. You two mean, copies. Each in different colors. Yeah, different covers. That so was clever. So you can way. choose which one. It's wasteful, but I mean, to send two. I mean, but... So that, that right there, that is the voice of... Tom Vanderbilt. It Tom, sure welcome. Is. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So, how do you describe yourself out in the big wide world? Uh, a writer. You know, magazines, books, blog posts, whatever text is being paid for at the moment. And I remember first, uh, one of the first things I read by you, you have a book about traffic. Yes, called right. Traffic. <laughs> narrows it down. Not the movie. Not related to the movie. Nor the band. Nor the band, thankfully. And that came out a couple years ago, right? Uh, 2009. So that you were sort of were and are like a, a global traffic expert. Yeah, I mean, people like to use that phrase. I am always a little bit weirded out by the phrase expert because, you know, I didn't, I didn't get a uh, transportation engineering degree in college and did not spend 20 years of my life dedicating myself to channeling cars through cities, but I talked to a lot of experts. I, I lived in the world of experts for a few years in traffic. Somebody must have tapped you to talk about uh, driverless cars. It's got to be, I mean, it's going to be a huge, huge impact on just everything that has to do with traffic. I did write a piece for Wired a few years ago. I was in the Google car with uh, uh, not Sebastian Thrun, but his the people that followed him mm -hmm. uh, there. And um, so, yeah, I was... In fact, I was in that car twice. I was in the Stanford car right over a few blocks away at Javits Center. This was going back to about 2000, 2010, let's say. They closed off 10th Avenue, and we did this sort of little drive. It, it was mm. pretty cool, but it was a little bit sterile, right? Because mm -hmm. it's all yeah. closed course, no pedestrians. The, a few years later, I was at Google. We were on a California public highway in the middle of the day. No one was touching the wheel. Um, Wild. I mean, the bloom is slightly off that rose after some of the Tesla, you know, the, the Tesla incidents. But um, oh, I was right because a Tesla fan died. I was in a yeah, crash, and yeah. that's not to compare what Google has exactly to Tesla because I mean, I mean, the irony is they were actually paying more attention to the driverless car than the average driver pays to their own driving mm -hmm. uh, because it was an experiment. But you know, I felt sitting in the back of that car watching a lot of other people make really bad decisions and erratic behaviors that I, I actually strangely began to feel safe after a little while in that car. But. So you feel safer in a, in a robot-driven car? Yes, but with close human supervision and gotcha. in control. Right. My sense is that the media, and because I was always asked to talk about this, mm -hmm. is that the media was really, and other interested parties, are really trying to drive the narrative here and that we are many, many years away from, you know, so. Now, you are, you are an avowed cyclist. We learned this a minute ago. Yes. To the point where it affects his health detrimentally. 
It's like people with with rescue dogs. I mean, the, the, one of the first things they'll tell you is that they have a rescue dog, and like cyclists are like the, one of the first things you'll find out is I'm a cyclist. We well, asked. Yeah, so, insufferable. Actually, I looked at you. I was like, he does something. This this is a man. The people can't see Tom, but he's very fit. Would you agree? I, I agree. He seems. Yeah, he this seems is like very, he's an excellent. Very, well, no, for right. I, I mean, writers. It's writers either have it together or they're like me and they're just a freaking disaster. You're on the have it together camp, but you're telling us it goes a little too far. It looks like you'd, you'd go and do a hundred miles on a given day. Yes, yeah. I mean, if I had the time, right? Not every day, or you know, right? <laughs> but you don't like beautiful day, day off. You'll you'll bang it out. What's the longest you've you've ridden? Um, I, I know this because I'm a data geek and I have Strava. It's um 221 miles. Whoa! And, and that was with the guy trying to set the record for the most miles cycled in a year, which he he did. How many what miles did he cycle? Uh, seventy-five thousand, um, which is what? the equivalent of cycling two hundred miles every day. What? Um, <laughs> what's his name? Kurt Sirvogel. Uh, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> of course, it is. Someone <laughs> else will have to write that down. The um, yeah. So you're tracking. You're tracking your bike rides. Yes. So technology kind of is in your. What is actually? What's your bike? Your bike stack. What's your technology that you use? Oh, I, that's pretty much just. Strava and a smartphone and a Garmin. Strava um, kind of won. I feel like everybody I know who runs and cycles. That's a, that's the one. Yeah, I mean Seems Garmin it. tries to have their own thing, and there's yeah. Map My Ride, and there's a, yeah. but it's the social thing. I think right. Was, was, they yeah, post I mean, their runs. It's pretty exhausting. Like I'll, I'll I'll have a bad day and just eat Cheetos, and then you know I'll get a ping on my phone that my friend just ran 14 miles. Oh, it's got a social network built in. You could just. Tell the world or tell Facebook that, hey, and it shows your path on the map. And, and you're you, just sitting there eating Cheetos. And, and I'm sitting there eating Cheetos watching Godfather 3. And someone's like, someone looped Central Park like eight exactly. times. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. There's an aspect to that. And which is, it actually is kind of fun because it tracks it all and it sees your progress and it's a whole thing. It, what? it definitely sort of dominates your world to the extent that there's a joke, you know, if if it's not on Strava, it didn't happen. Your ride, like if you, if you do a ride and your your GPS yeah. doesn't work for some reason, you you feel really crushed. Yeah. Because they kind of <laughs> solved, they nailed it as far as that goes. And in the winter, just in terms of technology, I've become a, a kind of devotee of Zwift. It sounds like it's spelled with a Z. It is. Okay. Um, it's kind of you know the equivalent of a ma- um, massively multiplayer online game for cycling. It creates online courses that you ride and you can actually record them on Strava and mm. you're riding against other virtual riders who are named and it's usually people in Canada or England because wherever there are cold climates. So you're not are, outside. No, you're on a smart trainer inside. Your normal right. bike is hooked up to that. and you're, This is a thing now. So you're living an augmented bicycle reality lifestyle. Yeah, yeah I mean, I was all ready to kind of just reflexively denounce, not denounce, but just sort of make fun of Pokemon Go people moving through the world collecting these random prizes. Then I realized that was myself. You looked in the mirror. Strava, <laughs> yeah. getting these King of the Mountain awards and things I like mean, that. I mean, it's so, fun, uh, right? Like it adds, it's, the winter sucks and you're, you, can't, you can't really ride. And then this adds something to it. Yeah, I mean, they haven't, I'm sure they must be dealing with Oculus Rift or something, but to take it to that, it already feels pretty immersive to me for just being on a, on a, on a single screen, but to then take it to that God, next that's level. that's really cool. So you spent a, a lot of your life dealing with cars moving around, but you're a very, very serious cyclist. Yeah, which, which actually came out of, I think, doing a lot of the traffic research. I sort of fell in with some uh, advocates and things. And, oh, interesting. You know, uh, okay, so and yeah. I also hit my 40s, and I needed something to do, too. So you weren't doing 100 Stave off decline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, you know. I, you know, I was going to bring up this question for this new book. I'm not a writer, 
and you know the leap to decide I'm gonna write about this topic is a big one for a writer that that dives as deeply as you do. What compelled you to dive into? I'm I want to ask about this book, but also first traffic. Like what 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 sort of you woke up and said I got it. I got to put this all together. I mean, traffic was a bit more organic in that there literally was a moment I was driving with my wife. We kind of passed the same spot a few days, and there was a construction zone merge situation. And there was just a lot of behavior at that, you know, bad and good. And I, I was just sort of struck. So I, I started to wonder, could, could there be a better way to design this system that would, that would kind of take some of the personal hostility out of it? So I, I went online, and it was as if, you know, I'd fallen down the rabbit hole. There was just this entire world of, of research, people doing this research that, you know, again, this one intersection study, 50-page report that I actually found kind of compelling because it was a behavior I'd been doing all my life and and not knowing that there was this um, almost like code running underneath it. Just this was, whole secret world just opens up. Yeah, like the the, the red – is it the red pill or the blue pill? I think – I, I mean, can't, we, I can't remember. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's like so, something had been revealed to me and, you know, not that people always, you know, do what traffic engineers want them to do, but so – just I, I love things like that that are the things that are almost hidden in plain sight. So tons of research has been done. Yeah. Well, it's a whole discipline. It's a whole discipline, but yeah. nobody sort of surfaced it and made it available. And, and yet it's, it's one so of those things that the minute you start talking about it with anyone, it was it's the ultimate kind of elevator topic. Oh, like, exactly. Like weather and traffic or just how people drive. Yeah. Or, so no problem starting a conversation, which is always sure. for a writer is kind of gold when you sense that moment that, right. you know. Um, Pierre Bourdieu in my new book, you know, it's not necessarily a thing that, you know, people in, a, in the bar down the street will want to start launching into, you right. know, talking about uh, sociology in 1960s France, but, you know, I, I wanted to give it the same go, and it, it was another thing that was right in front of me all the time in everyday life, especially as we've moved more online, just seeing, not only trying to express my own choices and make choices, but seeing increasing amount of opinion from other people about their choices. Yeah. And, suddenly feeling, you know, a bit overwhelmed by the whole process. So how, now, one of the things I noticed about You May Also Like is that you pick it up, it's a big book, it's got a lot going on, but it is probably the most heavily researched book I've seen in a while. It goes to footnotes and it doesn't stop towards <laughs> the end there. First of all, how did you come to this subject? The subject essentially of taste, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the subject of the book. Yeah, just a note on the footnotes. I, I kind of call it the the reverse uh, mullet, where you know, sort of the, the the business in back and the party up front. I don't know if you'd call the text actually a party, but but and I feel like a lot of books should should probably have more footnotes if people really went to the trouble to explain all their research. But I think right. people people cut corners. But um, there are no corners cut here. Well, <laughs> and some people. Some people almost complain about the presence of them. I've noticed on the reviews on Amazon for both this book and what? Traffic, and complain about the people. Footnotes? People complain about. I mean, this is literally the most meta subject possible, right? Because people Why? just have strong opinions on footnotes. Well, this is the, this is all right. We'll just launch right into a discussion of Amazon right now, which is that I mean, putting something out in the world really exposes you, you to the proclivities of people's taste. Not even about the content of the book, but. The book you're holding is, has what's called a decal edge. Mm -hmm. If you notice that sort of slightly um, variegated... Uh, yeah, the, the paper's sort of ridged. This is kind of an artisanal <laughs> effect, let's say, that Knopf <laughs> likes to do. and It, it does know. indicate serious book. Yeah, it has sort of a... And I don't mean serious like in subject matter, but like this book's going to be kind of a big deal if it's got a decal edge. Yeah, and yeah. yet 
some reviews on Amazon, people were literally saying, you know, this must have been some kind of printing error. Not all the end pages line up. So I'm going to give this one star. So, you know, um, and so this raises one of the immediate questions for an author about being on Amazon is, you know, kind of having to go through your one and two star reviews and figure out exactly what there's crazy went people wrong. In, these, in some of the reviews. Yeah, but the, the subject of this book is literally about how people form opinions and, and the kind of tastes that emerge. Yeah. So it's like if you write a book about taste and you go this deep into the sociology of it as you do, you kind of have to accept that they don't like it just because it has deckle edges. Right. And I mean, the immediate you know thing that any author and really any consumer should probably do is just avoid the polarities, avoid the one and five star reviews, because the one stars, as you mentioned, someone clearly has a strange axe to grind. And the five yeah, star, they're almost <laughs> angry in tone. Yeah. And just sputtering. And yeah, we can we can generalize and say that there are not very many well-written one star reviews. People don't go to that trouble to compose a, you know. Five star, it can be the other problem. It's your friend. It's it's a plant. I think it's... you can get that out of like a fridge. <laughs> like they're, they're, sometimes they literally live with the fridge for six months and have been noting the issues they're having with it. And the one star reviews, I feel like with physical products, it's kind of a different because they, they, they get angry and they can't return it in their past warranty. The least I can do is get on Amazon. It's true. I had a friend who made the world. I had a friend who made videos of his fridge. He was so upset with it. Yeah, yeah. He, what used yeah, to yeah. just People literally take videos of broken stuff. It would yeah. just scream at night. He he filmed it screaming. It had this very incredibly <laughs> loud buzz. It'd be like two in the morning, and like the tick 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 tick. It would just do that, which yeah. is bad but, but, in a fridge. But, but you, I think you're right about books. But this the raises a great point. Yeah. I mean, about refrigerators, in that you know they've done analysis of what are called experiential goods, which are books, movies, um, yeah. versus search goods. And a refrigerator would be sort of a search good. I mean, if your refrigerator were making that noise in the middle of the night, I would want to know about that. If you yeah. really had an issue with that, and if you were going to publish a 600-word rant, I would probably want to know why you're ranting, because it really indicates something about the functionality of that refrigerator. Right. If someone's going to go for a 600-word rant about a novel they've read... Chances are whatever their issue is is not going to be quote unquote functional. It's going to be some kind of taste prickle. I you know, I couldn't identify with the character. Like, well, you couldn't, but maybe I will. You also right. can't fix that on the production line. Right. Right. Like you can't be like, oh man, we're gonna have to like get this writer to go back and, and fix this novel. Like it's done, it's out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean book book re- I mean, I'm I'm an outsider here. You're both writers. I mean, book reviews in the traditional sense are incredibly nuanced in my ex- like when i read a book review i'm like i'm expecting like the three stars or the four stars at the end and it never comes it's almost no, no, like no, an no. essay in and of itself and it's quite no the good, good criticism is supposed to sort of be reflective and, and give people the ability to make a decision but right. not even necessarily require them to read the book it's sort of a signpost right yeah. um, but amazon is incredibly useful for physical objects is but Movies, I feel like it's a, it's it's just you know like you said, what do you call them? Experiential works. Yeah, and it's it, a different tone entirely that takes hold. And this is you know that's where the wisdom of crowds sort of works largely. I mean, I I recently had to buy uh, some bolt cutters, and mm-hmm. I mean, where is the source for bolt cutter knowledge in the world out there? I mean, you could find. A... What, what were you doing, Tom? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you read for an hour? like? That's the thing. I could get caught. It'd be an eighty dollar purchase, but I will spend three hours reading. Oh, easily. On it. Easily. <laughs> No, and, and that's this is one of the issues of modern day life. You know, you can I don't know that best you know, best made, they make the kind yeah. of fancy axes. I don't know that they make bolt cutters, but they may. You know, so you might yeah. think you have found the best bolt cutters, but oh, it turns out actually there's a, this new pair with ash handles from you know, and blah blah blah. But you know what I've noticed happens is you go you you start at like Amazon. 
And then you like might hit like, you know, like a, a couple of websites that sell products that are a little more focused. But then you might hit the message boards where the bulk cutter community hangs out. And now the it's day's dark. over. Yeah. 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 There's no way you're coming out of that. Cars yeah. are bad that way too. Like you end up in like the Jeep Wrangler community. Yeah. I'm kind of a watch fan. Watches are sort of like that. And it's very... Well, not just sort of. Like that's a, it's, that's yeah. a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's, you either go there and you're, you're in another country or you don't bother and you just are a casual watch person. <laughs> Well, and the weird thing about Amazon to me, just as a consumer, is that it kind of flattens all of this knowledge and experience where books are treated the same way as refrigerators and bolt cutters. Yeah. And and you start to get, I mean, I was looking the other day at, at they have surgical training kits on Amazon. I mean, like with uh, soft objects that resemble organs that you can practice your surgery on. And there are a lot of reviews and you know, three star reviews, five star reviews. And I, you know, what what is the criteria for yeah. for that? How would I even know that? How do I know if the, Kid, this is... kidney feels wrong? Well, yeah, yeah. right. I mean, <laughs> the, I was looking for a new white noise machine. There was one review that said the the, the white noise was literally uh, was a bit too deep for us. And you know, like I would just read that sentence over and over. Again. I mean, but there's just no sense. There's no emer- established criteria for the quality of white noise, as far as I know. There may be a, like a Beaufort scale or something. Well, there's of, a literal <laughs> like. I mean, it's just sort of. It looks a certain way when you see that waveform. Like, it's too deep. Is kind of amazing. Do people have opinions before Amazon? Like, it feels like we have this tremendous flowering of human opinion. And like, what what were we doing before, with all these thoughts and feelings beforehand? Were they there latent, or do you think that we've we've sort of extracted them through the systems we've built? Yeah, I mean, there was always you know word of mouth, and but this is online word of mouth is how a lot of researchers refer to this. So it's kind of word of mouth to the nth degree, where it's exponential and it has an audience and it can play off of one another. Whereas your previous word of mouth sort of was contained within your own your own sort of community, and that. You know, I use the example of, of the economist George Akerlof, what he called the lemon problem in, in kind of the used car market. I mean, the seller had all the information. The buyer didn't really know if he was buying a lemon or mm-hmm. not. So that really didn't work out that well for the seller or the buyer. So, you know, when you were traveling on the road, going to something like a restaurant was the same problem. Like, you know, was it a good restaurant? Or chances are, if you're traveling in Montana, you don't know anyone who's been to that restaurant. So you could try to make your own educated guess. But the emergence of Yelp, you know, just sort of introduced information, it reduced that information asymmetry. You could know as much as any other person that right. had eaten at that place. And you pointed uh, out in the book that, that the independent restaurants started to perform better, right, than they, than they had before Yelp. Yeah, because they acquired almost a brand-like kind of uh, transparency or, or you know, a legitimacy or, or a, a sense of you knew what you're going to get to a certain idea. I mean, that, that's always what brands were to eliminate the mystery of, you know, as it, opposed to like going to Applebee's, I recognize this from driving around, like going places with my kids. I think 20 years ago we would have gone to McDonald's, but now it's like, well, let's go to like a weird diner that we know will be cool with kids. It'll at least have some kind yeah. of experience. It'll be something local, and like it's just it's just more fun. It's more interesting. It becomes a little bit of an expedition, and you go about a mile off the highway instead of right off the highway. If anything, it's spun the other way. I mean, it's 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 swung the other way. I should say, which is there's so much. I mean, if I say, you know, Thai, Lower East Side, I'm going to get hundreds of results. And usually you don't get to, you know, the first 30 or five star on Yelp. And then there's another, there's a bunch of four and a half stars. So I'm still lost. I do this weird thing. I use OpenTable, mm-hmm. which is an online reservation, table reservation product. 
And when I'm making reservations for a few days from now, I actually look for restaurants that don't have all the bookings open because I'm trying to get some kind of signal that it's sought after, that mm-hmm. it's booked up and therefore it's a little harder to get a reservation, meaning it's a little bit better. Because I'm looking for any sort of signal to help me distinguish 300 results or 400 results. Somebody filter this down for me. Give me something. Yelp doesn't really do... I mean, it doesn't really do it. it it'll it'll kind of filter out the ones that are... You, you just need to... They need to not be options. It's just the disasters. Like, get those out of my way. But then there's still another 60 that are perfectly fine, and I still don't know how to how to winnow it down. How do you choose a restaurant? Um, you know, I, I still am pretty old school in terms of media, mm-hmm. you know, something I've read about. And it, it usually I have to, I will have to have heard about it three or four times and from a number of different sources. So, a review, a form, like something that's bubbled up that somebody's written it up. Or. Yeah, yeah. And, and then the secondary thing would just be living in Brooklyn as I do. You know, there's always just stuff opening in front of your eyes that right. you, you can't... And li- closing. Li- well, literally. <laughs> so you walk out the front door. Like that's yeah. how you choose a restaurant. And he opens the paper. Well, just my, oh, sure. the normal rounds yeah. of my life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of little, literal physical search. But Rich yeah. is here like tallying things in a spreadsheet from open table in order to I have a list. Rank. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I, have, I use it to do app. And one of my lists is restaurants I want to get to at some point. Ugh, I it's, didn't, didn't know I think that. some of them have closed down by now. Like it, it's an old list and I throw some stuff in there. But it, it gives me some sense of security to file it away. Like, oh, I know about you now. Like, like that's interesting to me. I didn't know that, that you actually do that. But... You curate your own taste. I'm, I'm looking at Rich now. Like you've sort of, yeah. You you have a set of things and parameters that you like, and you've like. I trust certain sites. I I like the infatu. I think it's called the infatuation. It's a, I think it's in other cities, but it's it's pretty well mm-hmm. well read blog in New York that reviews restaurants and bars and stuff. You know, it is an interesting point. We we are the one hand deluged with information, which is good, but there's still almost a crisis of authority with that information. I mean, just just an example. Last night I had this taste for a. Uh, fried clams, mm-hmm. F- fried clam roll, like sure. Ipswich. Uh, so I went What's on. What's a fried fried <laughs> clam roll? It's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, oh, like a lobster roll, but fried clams. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just you know, I just it's just a summer thing that I was going through. Yeah. So I you know went online, typed in best fried clam roll NYC. Led me to N- one. <laughs> the, the, the NYC it at the end. It happens a lot. We we do that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and it immediately led me to a couple ideas. I started to read down in the Yelp reviews. The first one I saw, I won't name the place, but the person immediately was saying, well, I'm from Massachusetts, and this place, this was, number one, not an Ipswich clam belly. It was only certain parts of the clam. So I, <laughs> I love humans. So suddenly I, I was like, well, oh, geez, maybe goodness. they're right, because I really don't know. I, I like, yeah. think you I like... stumbled on an expert, right. Yeah, and, and, but... <laughs> Amidst that expert were 20 other reviews saying the place was great and they loved it. And, you know, so it's like at the end of the day, I was, I was paralyzed. Yeah. It's amazing, um, right? That, that little negative signal blows your like, ability to just, like we can't average. It's really bad, like, you know, with pick, things like daycares where somebody will be like, you know, Mrs. Gulliver has weird boots. And you're like, oh, God, I don't know if I can send my kids there. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, I think we are primed in general just to dislikes hit us much more powerfully um things that negative information strikes us much more powerfully so yeah you can 10 friends will tell you this place was great then the last person you've heard from tells you don't go there like that's what sticks in your you know the recency and the one person 
Yeah, that one, I think the one negative review of 10 is more powerful than the nine other positive Yelp reviews, if, yeah. if it comes across as rational. Substantive, and, not yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, like, yeah, you'll see some, it's like uh, the, wa- the waiter wore a red hat. And you're like, okay, you can discount <laughs> that. Like, we have that filter. It's, I think I probably spend more time reading online comments about things than I do almost anything else. Almost not intentionally. Like, I would never go in and go for it. But there yeah, they are. It's it's the sort of great like ambient noise. That's the yeah. That's the now. Are we all becoming kind of curatorial? Is, is like that a normal behavior now to to write down the list of restaurants, or are people kind of going every time going in and going like, All right, I'll figure it out? Well, I think you know. I was just reading an interesting book by uh, Lawrence Scott called uh, "The Four Dimensional Human," kind hmm. of you know the, with the screen, the smartphone screen, is sort of the fourth dimension of life, and he was sort of making his point how you know. I think with a lot of other areas of life, we now have this filter that we apply. Like I, I read articles in a newspaper, and I think, well, that would be a good. That that's the Twitter excerpt right there. Um, I go it's terrible, I, isn't it? I yeah. go, I'm, I'm at a place on a beach. I think, well, there's the Instagram photo. I I already know which filter I would use. Um, you know, I, I am out riding my bike, and I'm thinking about Strava segments. So there's this kind of you know the the line between real life and the online life. So I think I'm sure people are doing a Pokemon right now. Like that that would be a perfect place for a Pokemon gym or you you're projecting the augmented reality back out. Yeah. And so you you, you go to a place and, and a re- like a restaurant and you might have either absorbed all the kind of commentary you already read or you, you put yourself in that mind of that you're writing an imaginary Yelp review and Is this the, terrible? The, 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 people are <laughs> happening to us? I you know, it's not like it's causing like World War Two. Fourth II. dimension sounds like, you know, we created another sense, but but is it? I, I'm trying to. I, I don't know. I'm old enough, like, to, to observe how young people do stuff, and say, "Wow, that's terrible." Put your phone away and have a conversation with. I don't them. think but they're maybe, any worse than we were. Maybe, maybe we're worse. I mean, I think honestly, I think that as younger people, I think build interesting immune systems to the yeah. media around them. Like they don't. There are times when I'm like helpless before Twitter, and I actually don't think that like my niece or nephew have that problem. They're just like, eh. Yeah. It's another thing. Like it, it, it's always been there. They decide to go in and out of it. Yeah. And I think the generation immediately before ours was this very like TV addicted generation. And as I grew up, I would hear all about like, uh, kids are addicted to TV. I never cared that much. Like I'd watch, I'd come home, like watch two right. reruns of what's happening and been, right, be right. like, eh, it's boring. Go We're off overreaching. For, like it's not that bad. Yeah. I go off for a bike yeah. ride. You know, it's just like, it wasn't that big a deal. Right. So I think like we're keenly aware of how weak as old people we are before these amazing temptations. Yeah. And then I think as they get picked up and messed around with by younger people, it's just like more of the stuff yeah. that they engage with. Yeah, I think you know, there's a scarcity issue here too. I mean, when, you know, as, as a, just for a music consumer, for example, when I was young, I would you know, try to hunt down this obscure stuff and it took a lot of work and effort right. and physical time. And now, you know, <laughs> like Gigi Allen is is like a click away on Spotify from you know from Wagner from. The, I just want to advise our <laughs> listeners: do not go looking for Gigi <laughs> Allen. Like, just stay away. Yeah. No. Which actually, but that brings us to a point that I'd like to raise, which is that both you and Rich, and I think you're more ashamed of it than Rich, are Rush fans. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> Rich, and and that the book. I mean, in the book, you talk about this. Like it's. You sort of had to make peace with it a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, spirit I, of the radio. I don't know if "fan" is the word, but where, where you know, where I wouldn't instantly, you know, turn the channel or or sort of yeah. feel that I wasn't being cool for listening to the song. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but, but Rich, you, but you, you were hand. there from day one. Rich or, went and saw yeah. them at Barclays Center. I've right? seen them a few times. It, it, they're it's a pretty good live show. I look. <laughs> How, what is it? What is the audience like? 
Uh, let me just put it this way. Within a 40-mile radius of Barclays Center, nobody was getting IT support. That sounds about right. <laughs> they were all in the Barclays Center. Like anybody whose computer wasn't working or the Wi-Fi was down, they're going to have to wait for that rush show to end and everybody will come home and fix it for them. Uh, it's a, you know, I was like 16 and then my friend gave me uh, a CD and the first song I put on was Bytor the Snow Dog. <sighs> And I was like, wait a minute, this is pretty heavy. How the hell is anyone supposed to react to that? Look, I'm still figuring it out, right? Zeppelin was talking about girls and drugs and partying. And I was maybe even younger, maybe 14. And this was science fiction. Right, it was, it was Ayn Rand. It was kind of fantasy. So I mean, when like 2112 was a concept, like the idea of a concept album kind of blew my mind a little bit. Like this was, it was like Dungeons and Dragons a little bit. So as a nerd... You know, I'm a nerd, and, well, and, and it, it fit in. And so... Well, I think this is one thing go. that has changed. I mean, going back to my high school days, you know, I mean, things were just much more, I think, bifurcated. I mean, without even knowing much about, let's just say, Rush, you know, if, if you liked a certain number of other things, that would probably preclude your ability to at least admit that you liked Rush. Right. I'm, not, I'm not saying I had great taste in high school. I, I you know... I None of us did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the kids who did are, were always sort of... Like in retrospect, you're like, oh, that was a little creepy. Like if they had like really perfect spot on music taste, like yeah, 10 years later, it you're was like, a mess. Ah. I mean, you know, you're sort of forming your personality and everybody that was slightly more awkward than everyone else was into Rush. It was a great way to, I mean, you put on the headphones and then you were, you were saving the world. So you're telling us sort of how your taste was formed. Yeah, I mean, I there was also the clan that, that painted their backs of their denim jackets with Iron Maiden, Eddie from Iron Maiden, and that was another. We could talk about them for a few minutes. How well? How how much of taste comes down to people being in these sort of subcultures and scenes? I, I mean, and, massively. I mean, I, there, there's uh, I mean, one of my favorite papers I, I looked at was uh, was called "Why Liberals Drink Lattes" uh, by a political scientist, and, and talk about like how wow how something like a coffee beverage could somehow come in to stand as a totem for one's political affiliation. Because the, the, the title derived from, you know, these comments we heard. Liberal about drinking. Li this was a research paper? Or? Yeah, a research paper. Latte yeah, drinking wow. liberals, sure. Yeah, with driving their uh, Volvos and their, you know, even a car brand. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's transportation. It's, it's steel and four wheels. And, you know, how does that acquire a political connotation? It's just this process called homophily, I think, where, you know, just the knowledge that other people are doing it that you want to associate with, whether you even, I think whether you even like that thing, you just start to feel that you almost should because it seems to match up with a lot of other. Yeah. Is this you a, create so, so, an association by... Yeah, and, and this is where I, I, I have a kind of, there's, there's a phrase that Carl Wilson uses that I like uh, called the guilty displeasure, which is when, you know, you actually don't like something that you think you are probably told you should like. I mean, living in Brooklyn, I'll just say something like, you know, uh, Patty Smith or something like if right. you know you you just need to like Patty Smith and say that she's <laughs> great and you've read her book and but, you know there, there are just things that kind of come with the territory of being in Brooklyn. You can think it's part like, of the application <laughs> process of living in Brooklyn. <laughs> sure, so foods, was, music. And I'm not saying I don't like Patty Smith. I'm just saying I'm just trying to think of an example. You, you of, better uh, not. No, you know, yeah. I, I mean Hamilton. If you're going to, if you made an anti-Hamilton case right now, I mean, you'd have. I'm to, ready to make an anti-Hamilton. <laughs> That's our next episode, yeah. actually. Um, well, there's, but then there's that, right? What, what is there a name for for sort of that flip when something becomes too popular and everybody rejects it? 
Like yeah. pe- there's a definite sort of Hamilton, like Hamilton's too big backlash going on. Yeah, I mean, I, psychologists talk about this thing, uh, conformist distinction, mm-hmm. um, where it's, it's sort of this unique human desire to be at once like one another, arguably going back to our time in small groups when, you know, social cohesion was very important. But at the same time, we are, we do have this desire to achieve our own individual identity. So, you know, even if you are in a strong grouping that is kind of conformist, you will find your own niche within that identity. So if, if, if you're like the Beatles, two Beatles fans are talking, well, you're a fan of John, I'm a, more of a fan of Paul. You know, even you, within it, the Beatles fan mm, subculture, there it starts to split up even there. Yeah, yeah. And, and this kind of conformist individual axes can work in funny ways. There was one great study I saw that they looked at the people in the most, uh, the groups that were kind of the most detached from the mainstream, we're talking subcultures, those subcultures were the most conformist within those subcultures. So uh, just to use an example, I don't even know if this is true, but like punk rock in the late 1970s, if you you did not have a mohawk and had a safety pin, you know, you were not a punk rocker. So Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. there, there were sort of traits that affiliated you with the with the clan, right? I mean, in a way. Yeah, and so I think, you know, it's like that. Juggalos. Sure, yeah. they're in the book, and St. Clown Posse's in the book. It's part I mean, of the, I mean it's you can't talk about taste. Like a cult, right? You can't talk about taste in America without it, well, because it gets everybody so angry. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think the phenomenon of, if you guys showed up at work today wearing the same shirt, you know, it's not really a big deal, but there's this joke, right? You sort of laugh, and you're like, oh, do you guys... It actually happens. Call. It happens all the time. Okay. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Strangely, and, and everybody does laugh at it. Um, you call yeah. each other this morning. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Typical joke. But why should that be a problem? I mean, who cares? But there is this thing where we don't want to feel like we're exactly marching in lockstep. So I, I think that there's there's always this dynamic process going on, and it it hits different people at, at different points. We're not all. Some of us are more conformist. Some are more distinctive. But at some point, it does flip. And for, I mean, you raise a good point. You hear these funny expressions. You know, like oh, that just looked fresh to my eyes. You know, like mm-hmm. like. You know, someone is tired of looking at a certain fashion. Like, why? Why should we actually tire of a fashion? There's not really a biological reason. It must be social. It must be about the wanting expression. To, Things are kind of moving on. You don't want to be left behind. You need to. You need to. So it's not just that you have to signal out to your community that you belong, but that communities are kind of changing and evolving, and you have to stay with the program. Yeah, and I mean this, and it, it can reach such an, an extreme pitch that this was the kind of the. the conceit of the norm core movement, which was just really sort of a parody, but right. you know, the idea that we're going to go against all the, you know, our trendiness will come from our disobeyance of the trends by... And just we'll just wear normal <laughs> clothes. Yeah, yeah. So. so most people, I think, I mean, you would assume as a human being that your taste is internal, that it comes, it sort of springs from some, you know, great set of preferences and understandings within your brain. But what we're talking about really is that it's almost all learned and then kind of interpreted and then sort of turned into action. Yeah, I mean, there was just a brand new study that came out after the book came out, unfortunately, but just looking at music and they, they played, you know, a variety of, of tonal and atonal music to different groups. And one of the groups, I don't know if you saw this, they played to was uh, in South America, I can't remember, you know, sort of one of these these barely reached sort of tribes and, and they... So people who haven't had a lot of contact with Western culture and Western music. Exactly. Okay. They did not really express a preference one way or the other. They did not find the atonal music disturbing. They did not find the, ton- the, the, you know, the tonal music more pleasing. They, to them, it was all just sort of noise, which really made the strong cultural argument where other people try, have tried to make biological issues, which is not to say there are no inherent 
No, but if you talk to it, like mu- musicologists will tell you that there's certain like, you know, frequencies and, and, and harmonics that just work in a very specific way and kind of please the ear. But, you know, now the question seems open is what, does it please the ear? Because that's what we've trained ourselves to listen to. We and started hitting springs. To, and, right, I mean, right. Yeah, I, I'm convinced that, you know, it's really just a massive exposure thing. And that if you, you know, it's sort of like a the movie Trading Places, if you, if you take someone out of this room and put them in an entirely different culture within a year, they'll, you know, their, their tastes will have changed and adapted to that local uh, environment and begin to appreciate the things they may have once hated. So as you're telling me this, in the back of my head, I'm, I'm always thinking about our world, which is about shipping software. And there's a thing, we talk with people all the time and people talk with us all the time about various kinds of testing testing headlines, A-B testing, is that blue going to do better for people than sure. that red? And there's a part of me as I'm listening to you that's just going like, yeah, don't even worry about it too much. Like, uh, you don't stop testing those headlines. <laughs> just go with instinct and say to hell with it. Like, it's, it might be better to just be sensitive to the, the norms of your community than to run some big exhaustive investigation as to whether blue is a better color for headlines than red. Yeah, I mean, well, with this book cover. I mean, there were two editions, blue and red, and it was it was a bit of a joke because publishing usually does not offer you a choice of book covers. Do they have different UPC codes? No, one SKU, uh, which is why if you actually go to Amazon, not to pick on Amazon, I'm, I'm, I'm happy they're selling the book, but there's a disclaimer. We will, <laughs> you cannot choose the color. We will just send you either. So Amazon, this world of, of all the choice you can, you can muster does <laughs> not give you the choice. I, I like to joke that Knopf you know, this venerable publishing icon in New York City has you know, disrupted the model of, of Amazon by, you know, just simply issuing two covers. I was going to ask you if one's selling better than the other, but since Amazon's not doing it, you're not going to get... No, I mean, we did a Twitter poll and people, you know, responded uh, blue was more favored. Interesting. But again, so this lines up with the, the finding in many psychological studies that blue is, it, when given the choice, yeah. abstractly, blue is the most preferred color of humans so across all colors yes interesting so you could have you could have just avoided any kind of design decision and just okay we're going to do the blue sure uh, you know and maybe that would have worked but, um but since you mentioned a b testing and this is something that you know publishing we don't really have a b testing but a place like netflix i mean there's just a great piece on their tech blog you know those the rows that you get when you open the splash page and mm-hmm. you know those are now those, first of all they were constantly toyed with to you know what's the colorful what, action films about dogs exactly what's the order you know what's the grouping you know and, and people like online behavior they generally don't go too far below the first few rows and they don't go too deep into each row but now they're even taking that you know step further and subtly you know changing the dvd or, or the, the movie cover art so if it's Whoa. if it's the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, you know, do we show this character? What if we show three characters? Oh boy, which gets a higher click through rate, which is what they're all about engagement, right? So I mean, these things are being you know happening in real time, which is you know from a taste point of view is is incredibly fascinating, and, and we didn't used to have such a tight feedback loop. Where but see, what's interesting is what you're talking about here is something that's very in the moment. Like they're going to get that feedback over the period of like a month or two, and then probably lock into it like oh okay that's what works better for this one but the reality is that there's all these subtle things at play that means that six months from now that may not be performing in this like like it's it's a much more dynamic and complicated human system than someone making a choice at that moment is going to to sort of indicate exactly and suddenly three people on a dvd cover is getting a huge amount of click-throughs and they shift everything to multiple characters that may suddenly seem 
recherche, exhaust, it might exhaust the reader and, and or right. the viewer, and suddenly someone comes up with a minimal cover that just has a title. I'm like, wow, that catches my eye. So this is the the thing with taste. I mean, why does taste change, and why do why does suddenly something look refreshing? And um, so what I, what I do think is happening now with that kind of shorter feedback loop that things like social media present is that these trends happen faster and faster. And, you know, you can, if you think back to the old fashion model of, of the Parisian runway shows, then they would produce a, a book and then that book had to be sent back to the United States. Then the designers in New York would see it and then they would eventually get to the department stores in Chicago and then Peoria. Now, you know, I mean, someone sitting at home on Instagram can look at what's happening on a Parisian runway Instantly, mm-hmm. whether they can actually, you know, to the extent to which they can act on that is another question. Or but, Katy yeah. Perry can tweet out a pair of sunglasses with ninety million followers on her Twitter account, and and there's sort of a new, there's new kinds of distribution of taste. But see, what's interesting to me is we're in this world where people talk constant statistics are seen as validating and they're mm-hmm. seen as truth, but it's very hard for people because really, when you think about those Netflix statistics, all they're backing into is a contemporary portrait of culture and preference at the moment. And the, the thing that, that you talk about a lot in the book and that we're talking about here is that it's also fungible. And it's, it's really confusing. And we, we, you see this a lot. Like that data set, that Netflix data set, feels like probably after two months, it's almost going to be useless. Like you got to keep it moving and constantly keep tweaking and adapting. I think that's adapting. probably true. Yeah, I mean, if I could just go back for a minute just to talk about something there about Katy Perry and the sunglasses. I think this is something that happens all the time now, which is that, you know, I mean, I think taste is never more dynamic and more interesting the more people have access to things. I mean, when, when you have sort of a bifurcated society, you have the wealthy and you have the poor, mm-hmm. the lines of taste are very clean and clear and they don't really mix. When you, you know, the whole problem of taste really began to take off with the Industrial Revolution as more people had access to the same things. So poor people are suddenly allowed to have taste. Or to have access. I mean, so that, More so, options, right. really. Yeah, so, you know, with, with music, for example. So now, you know, when I was in college, it was sort of special to go to the record store and get a Japanese pressing of some obscure album. And now it's all online. So where do you find that distinction, that source of distinction? How do you signal your your sense of specialness? Now it becomes about these things that other people can't get. Uh, not only was I at the LCD Sound System show at the Panorama Fest, I went to the after party and did this and did that and you know so it's well and also uh, there's less i mean this is i put you on the spot with rush but that's that's kind of what you were talking about like all these sort of like class focused taste indicators start to blur together now like you might just have that on your playlist and a Katy perry song and also um some beethoven symphonies and that's normal it just sort of it all collages in a way and so then there's these other indicators that you need to go out and find because it's incredibly. Yeah. Di- I think it's difficult. I, I find it hard. I, I'll say, you know, I'm really in the mood to dive into a new album, and I just don't know where to go. I mean, Spotify, they, they, you know, they bought Echo Nest, which was sort of their leap into recommendations and whatnot. But it's still hard. It's still hard to find something that you want to dive into for a few months. It 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 would take it takes work, in fact, to find something that connects with you based on your taste like they're doing the best they can to sort of draw a profile of you and then put stuff in front of you and frankly it sort of works there's an article today in in buzzfeed or maybe in the last couple days about the fact that 50 percent of spotify listens or like spotify playlist listens are to a human curated playlist like there's a talk about the algorithm deciding everything but there's actually people who are paid full-time to 
curate playlists for Apple and, and for Spotify and, and yeah. other services like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think per Equinest that their, their weekly discovery feature has gotten better. But yeah, I, I still am often just going to Spotify because I read about something in a book or I read a review yeah. in the New York Times. or So it, it just, for me, is a useful... Like pull it up, yeah. For me, the, the, the archival quality is more interesting than the yeah. discovery quality. Right. But um, right. So, you know, there's a part of this book I really wanted to talk about, which is you, you sort of guide people as to how to observe and identify and think through their own issues of taste. So I, they'll have to actually go and purchase the book in order to do this. It's not available in any libraries. There's no other way to read it except to, to give Tom money. Um, I'm assuming you can get this in Kindle format too, but it just doesn't even have any colors. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. You could just imagine. Well, wow. no, I would. I mean, if you pulled it up yeah, in the Kindle gonna, app on it's your have phone. one color. Wouldn't it have like a nice random function that would give you one of two colors? That would be nice. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. You could yeah. see who reads. You know, yeah. it'd be like, who does Talks red, <laughs> red make somebody flip further? Yeah. Okay. So the book is called You May Also Like. It is published by Knopf. It's by Tom Vanderbilt. Taste in an Age of Endless Choice. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to come in, Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'm just glad we connected on Rush. Thanks, Tom. Thanks. That uh, Tom Vanderbilt's a bright young man. He really is. He's I felt up a little to... dumb after that show. <sighs> that guy's got it together. Yeah. He really does. You know, you just meet somebody and you're like, oh, that's how you do that. You yeah. That's how you write a lot of books no. and think really and he good. dives in, which I respect. Oh, boy. I know the research on this, on uh, on the taste, the taste book is really impressive. Yeah. So we're very grateful to have had Tom Vanderbilt in the studio talking to us. My name is Paul Ford. Rich Ciotti. This is Track Changes, the official Postlight podcast postlight's a company that builds uh it's a product studio actually in new york city we build websites apps all those digital things that people need us to build we build them that's what we do yeah so rich i'm gonna see you next week as always i'll probably see you back at the office in about five minutes too a minute uh contact at postlight.com if you need anything we love getting your emails thank you thanks 